rest of you grab your Bibles. Make your way to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. We're going to be looking at three verses, beginning in verse 37 and working our way through verse 39. And our focus this morning is on the great proclamation. Originally this week, as I began setting out to prep for this morning, I thought we would finish up John chapter 7. I thought we'd wrap up this chapter this morning, but as I was prepping and, and reading and studying and praying, I realized that there's just so much in these three verses that it's probably going to take all of our time just to get through it. You know, throughout history, uh, there have been a lot of great proclamations by political leaders, by activists, by world leaders, politicians. Uh, many of us have heard the famous speech from Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, titled, I Have a Dream. A lot of us have seen either the video or maybe some of you were alive when JFK gave his famous saying, think not what you can do for your country, but what you can Think not what, you can do, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Teddy Roosevelt was known to say, speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. President Nixon announced to the nation on TV, I am not a crook, right? Uh, of course, we all know how that ended up. President Reagan was given a speech at one point in time, and a balloon popped in the midst of his speech. This was shortly after he had just been shot And his response to the balloon popping was, you missed. President Clinton, during the Monica Lewinsky scandal, well, we won't say what he said, but uh, almost every major figure in history has had a proclamation which has convinced a large group of people to join their cause or believe in what they were saying. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to give a great proclamation, some of it Some of the people believed him, some people got on board with him, and some resisted. What Jesus says in our passage this morning infuriated the religious leaders, and we'll look at that next week as we look at the reaction to the great proclamation. And it caused the crowds in the temple, as that is where this setting takes place, to begin to wonder about Jesus' identity even though most of them had their own preconceived notions about who he was because they knew where he came from and they knew his background. So let's read our passage, and we're going to walk through this this morning. And the word Lord says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's go to the Father real quick before we get into this. Father, thank you again for your amazing grace and your love and your mercy. Thank you again for your spirit and the gift you've given us and the gift of eternal life and forgiveness. And we're now reconciled with you, justified before you, sanctified from this world. Father, I pray that you just be our shepherd and guide us and lead us through this passage. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and our hearts ready to accept what you're going to lay before us. 
And I just want to agree with what has already been prayer, prayed already, that if there's someone here this morning who does not know you as your Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation, and they would be eternally changed. Continue to be glorified in this time as we did into your word. Pray your kingdom and will will continue to be done. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to give us some context um, about what is going on so we can understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is journeyed down to Jerusalem. This is where this is taking place. He's at the Festival of Booths. It's also known as the Festival of Tabernacles and the Festival of Shelters. This began to be set up at the beginning of the chapter. This particular festival for the Jewish people was one of three that was the main festival. And it was a time where they would set aside to remember how God had provided and protected their ancestors as they wandered through the wilderness. And it took place at the end of the harvest season, which in our calendar would be about late September or early October. And so during the festival, Jewish people would all gather in Jerusalem and they would make tents out of, palm, out of sticks and palm leaves, and they would celebrate how God has continued to provide for them through a worshiping time, through praying to God to provide rain for the next harvest as that harvest was coming in. And the entire festival was meant to be focused on God's continual provision for his people. And so every morning during this festival, the chief priest would take a golden flagon, which is basically a, like a pitcher, and he would walk out to the pool of Siloam to gather water, and then he would carry it through the city back into the temple where he would proceed to pour the water out inside the temple to symbolize God's provision of rain from the, for the past harvest season. Now, our passage in verse 37 tells us that this, on, this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, this particular festival lasted eight days, but nothing really happened on the eighth day because people would be kind of cleaning up the tents and the streets, uh, people would be going back to their homes, and those who had traveled down to Jerusalem, as Jesus did, would begin making the arrangements to head back home. And so the last day, the great day that John is pointing to here in verse 37 would be the seventh day of the festival. Now on this day, the chief priest would take his golden pitcher, he would walk out to the pool I just mentioned, he would gather the water, and then he would head back into the temple. But on this particular day, the crowds that were gathered for the festival would accompany the chief through the streets, they would enter into the south gate of the temple, making their way towards the inner court. And as they came towards the inner court, the chief priest would make his way around the inner court seven times. And as he would do that, the crowds would start singing what is known as the Hillel. It comes from Psalm 113 through 18. And before the chief priest poured out the water, and after the closing of Psalm 118 of the Psalms, the crowds would begin waving willow and myrtle twigs, which were attached to their right hand, and they would hold up a piece of the fruit that came from the harvest in their left hand, and they would all in unison together say three times, Give thanks to the Lord. After the crowd cried out, the water would then be poured into a silver bowl, along with a separate bowl, which the chief priest would pour wine into. The water was to recognize God's continual provision for rain and for the harvest. And the wine was to remember God's promise that one day he was going to pour out his spirit upon the people. 
And it was after this procession, this symbolic act, this time of celebration, that's when Jesus says what he says. And so it carries a lot more weight when we understand what has happened leading up to his proclamation to the crowds, the religious leaders, the chief priests who were all gathered in that day. Now looking back to chapter 7 in the very beginning, it tells us that Jesus' brothers wanted him to go down to this particular festival to make himself publicly known, to which Jesus told them no, it wasn't his time. Of course, he obviously did go down, but the Bible lets us know that he went down in secret. And it wasn't until the middle of the festival that Jesus comes to the temple, the most public area in Jerusalem, and he makes it known that he is in fact there, and he begins to teach, which starts in verse 14. And so during that teaching, Jesus confronted the religious leaders about their knowledge of their law and their willingness to break the law because of their murderous intentions that were in their heart. He continued to speak to religious leaders about their dealing with circumcision on the Sabbath and a miracle that he performed the last time he was in Jerusalem, which was recorded in John chapter 5. And after doing this, the religious leaders were dumbfounded, which led to a division amongst the crowds because they're trying to figure out, is he the Christ? And why aren't the religious leaders doing anything about it if he's not the Christ? So the religious leaders, being unable to defend themselves towards Jesus decided that the best course of action that they could take is to gather the temple guards and to go arrest him and hopefully pull off what they wanted to do in killing him. But we're told in verse 30, no one laid a hand on him, being Jesus, because his hour had not yet come. Now what happened between the middle of the festival and this last day of the feast, the great day, we don't know. Because none of the Gospels record this particular event that took place during this festival. Most likely, Jesus went back into private or secrecy and and continued to have his own time of private worship. But the phrase in verse 37 says that on the last day of the festival, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. After all the procession that happened, after all the celebration, after all of the traditions that were being taken place, after all the symbolism that was being laid before the people, Jesus arose to announce a very important statement. The word phrase cried out in verse 37 is the same Greek word that we see in verse 28, which means that he proclaimed. It implies that he stood up and shouted in a loud voice, to gather everyone's attention so they could hear exactly what he was going to say and what he was going to declare. And since it said he cried out or he proclaimed, it was going to be something very important and it was going to contain truth. In doing this, Jesus was revealing to the crowds gathered at the temple on this last day. He was revealing to the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, even though that he knew they wanted to kill him, Even though that he knew they had put a bounty or a warrant out for his rest, he was not afraid of them. He was not afraid of them like the crowds were. Crowds wouldn't even speak publicly about him. Jesus was in the most public area of Jerusalem with the most people gathered at that particular moment. And he makes the statement. Every morning during the festival, as I mentioned, water would be brought out and it would be poured out. But this day, the great day, the last day, was even greater than all those others. 
The water not only represented the Lord's provision of rain for the harvest, but it was a symbol to the people how God had provided water for his people to drink as they wandered in the wilderness. And Jesus is taking this physical, symbolic act and declaring that the water that the people are actually thirsting for could be found only in him. He's declaring that he is a fulfillment of several prophecies. That's why he says, as the scripture has said there in verse 38. For example, in Isaiah 43, 19, it says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Psalm 55, 1. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12, it gives a vision to the prophet Ezekiel, of water flowing out of the temple and the prosperity of God's people in the land. Joel chapter 3 verse 18 says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and the water and water the valley of Shittim. Did you catch that? The fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. And where's Jesus standing in this very moment? In the house of the Lord. Saying, I am the living water. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Speaks of the prophecy of the coming of the Lord. It says, on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be keen over all the earth. And on that day the Lord will be, the, be one and his name one. Even more, Zachari- Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. In Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 13. God refers to himself as the fountain of living waters. The Psalms use that metaphor and that imagery when they refer to God, they say, my soul thirsts for you. In Psalm 42, 1 through 2, it says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. And so what Jesus does, this is why he's the master teacher. He takes all that is going on around, all this conclusion of this festival, and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. It's a very similar statement that Jesus made back in John chapter 4 when he encountered the Samaritan woman at the well. He said, you know, I am the living water. As Jesus made this statement, there had been no one at the temple, no one gathered on that day who had not understood what he said. Jesus was announcing his equality with God. He was announcing his deity because he was the living water. Knowing that, but Jesus is stating two important truths just out of verse 37. The first one is this, everyone is invited. You have to keep in mind who's present at the temple on this day. Obviously Jesus. You've got a great crowd of Jewish people. The chief priest was there. The Pharisees were there. The Sadducees were there. There were probably zealots there. There were other religious leaders there. The temple guards were there who were ready to arrest Jesus. The 12 disciples were there, including Judas, who was going to betray Jesus. And the crowds were there, 
who were divided and confused about who Jesus was. Yet Jesus delivers this invitation to anyone and everyone. It tells us that no one is eliminated from the forgiveness of God. This was an open invitation in the most public arena. The meaning of what Jesus said, he says, if anyone thirsts. It can take us back to what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When he delivered, was probably one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. John 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that word world implies every human being on the planet. And in case we didn't get it, Jesus says, whoever believes. And as Jesus makes this proclamation in verse 37, he's gathered around a bunch of Jewish people who believe that the Messiah and the Christ was only for them. But Jesus is revealing salvation is not restricted to nationality, is not restricted to gender or economic wealth or education or background or age. Salvation is for everyone, and everyone is invited. The other thing which comes out of verse 37 is individuals must know their need. Jesus is proclaiming he is a living water. The issue comes down to is this, the individual must know what their soul is actually thirsting for. Jesus' statement is he is the fulfillment of, all, of what all people are truly thirsting for, even though some don't realize it. As I mentioned in the Psalms, David and some of the other writers who gave us that book understood God was what their heart and their soul longed for, and only God could satisfy the desire of their heart. When we look into our world and we see all this anger, we see confusion and animosity, we see individuals trying to define themselves with pronouns, we have to understand the souls of this people, they're actually thirsting for the living God, but they don't know it. The Bible reveals every, every individual, every single one, is made in the image and the likeness of God. The Bible also reveals that every individual is made for the sole purpose of worshiping God, loving God, and pursuing after God. The problem is not every individual knows that. Because they haven't heard the truth. It hasn't been revealed to them. And for some individuals, there's been things done in the name of God which hasn't represented God. So the way they react, they define themselves in a way that God has already, def- in a way that isn't the way that God has already defined them. Their souls and their hearts are confused, just like the crowds that are gathered in the temple here in John chapter 7. And Jesus is saying here in verse 37 that he is the only thing which can fulfill and satisfy the soul and the heart. Jesus is the only thing we need, and not just at our salvation, but every day to satisfy our spiritual thirst. About two years ago, Jamie and I and the kids, we uh, went down to Dogwood Canyon. And we've been told about it, said it they, they told it was beautiful. And it was the first time we ever went. My opinion, probably the last time we go, um, but it was beautiful. 
And I said it last time because you have to pay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that at first. You pay to walk or hike, if you want to call it a hike, but it's a path. And so you pay to get in so you can walk down this path. And the reason I say it's probably our last time because there are so many beautiful places that God has created all around us that you can just show up for free and walk. And you can show up for free and hike. And so as we're setting to go, I usually am the one that carries the backpack for the family. And so I got the backpack ready. I put snacks in the backpack. I put a little water jug. It was a little bigger than this, but I put that in the backpack. It was full of ice and water. And we drove down to the canyon. And uh, since it was shortly after the blessed years of COVID, um, there were no drinking fountains available. Because if you remember, you have to think back. There was a time when people were scared to use anything that other people had touched, breathed on, and some people had looked at. And so all drinking fountains were turned off. And the thing about Dogwood Canyon, there's a lot of beautiful things you can see. There's a lot of waterfalls you can see. Uh, the trail begins in Missouri. And if you do the whole trail, you can actually make your way into Arkansas. And we had a map, and it said, at the end of this trail... In Arkansas, there were elk and buffalo. We thought that would be pretty cool to see, so uh, we, we paid to go on this hike. But since we paid to go on the hike, we didn't pay for any form of transportation. So we're hoofing it, and so we're walking. And it, uh, i got to tell you, it was a pretty warm day. And so we're going about on this, on this hike, and we pushed past the waterfalls. We got to the point where we knew we were getting close to the Arkansas line. The problem was we were also getting close to running out of water. And if you don't know anything about hikes, when you go out, you got to go back. And so we finally make it to the Arkansas line. And we just plop down in the shade. And it was like a scene from the movie Three Amigos. We had our water jug, and we're passing around, and we're literally trying to tap every drop out onto our face as these jerks on bikes are driving by and splashing their face with water. We're like, oh. The journey back to the car was not fun. <laughs> I thought we were going to have to, like, drag Abby back. I mean, she was, she was done. And, and it's your only option is you can stay here and die, or you can make it to the car, and we'll take you home and feed you. Get back to the car, crank the AC, and we just sit in there and try to gather ourselves. thing is, this is what happens to our souls when we don't remain attached to Jesus, the living water. We thirst. We get tired. We get aggravated. And we just want whatever is going on to end because we're spiritually dehydrated. In other words, we're drained. And there may be some believers here this morning who feel that way, that you're just drained. Or maybe you've gone through a moment in life where you just feel, felt drained. Jesus said earlier in John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He would say later before he would go to the cross that I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. And hear this part. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He is what and all we need. 
And that is what he's proclaiming to the crowds at the temple this day. And there's two more things I want us to see in what Jesus says and then what John writes in verse 39. And I'm going to try to get right to the point to both of these because some of you all know there's food out there. And church people, when they know there's food in the area, kind of get a little antsy. And so, uh, especially Southern Baptists, uh, you start looking at your phones, your watches, and you start hearing your stomach talk to you, especially now that I mentioned food <laughs> or cookies. <laughs> anyway, verse 38, look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, and we already talked about those, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here's the promise. Those who believe will overflow. Those who believe will overflow. This is a commissioning verse that Jesus is delivering. Now John, led by the Spirit, elaborates what Jesus is saying here in verse 38. And he does that in verse 39. And he lets us know that Jesus is pointing to the Holy Spirit. When we believe, which means that we've placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. And we believe that Jesus died for our sins. He rose again. He has now ascended to the Father. Or John would write, he was now glorified. We'll look at that here in a moment. The promise that God gives us, when we place our faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ, God gifts us with the Holy Spirit. This means Jesus, who is the living water, now flows out of his people. And this is done through gifts of the Spirit. This is done through the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul was led by the Spirit to elaborate on in his letters. So if we're abiding in Jesus, that means we're remaining in him. We're remaining attached to him as the the vine. We're the branches. He's the vine. We're remaining in him. We're in a close relationship with him. We're finding rest in him, and we're living in that relationship with him. Then Jesus is telling us here in verse 38, if we're doing those things as followers, then the only natural thing to happen is that Jesus should be seen in our lives. He should be flowing out. And this is done by words, but it's also done by actions. Last week I mentioned a passage out of Acts chapter 4. In that particular passage, Peter and John are arrested because they were preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And they were brought before the Sanhedrin, which was the religious leaders, and they kept telling them, you got to stop this, you got to stop this, you got to stop this. And you know what Peter and John did? They're like, ah, ah, here, let me share the gospel with you. And as the leaders looked at him like, who are these people? Aren't they Galileans? But they were so perplexed. Here's what it says. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. It's the fruition of what Jesus is saying here in verse 38. When we believe and we remain with Jesus, Jesus naturally flows out of our life. It's just an overflowing. The final point is found in verse 39. And here... This happens throughout the Gospels where the apostles or the writers of the Gospel are led by the Spirit to give us a little insert, a little detail that may not have been understood in the crowds on this particular day. And so John is led by the Spirit as he writes to his original audience and to write to us to know what Jesus said. Now this he said about the Spirit. 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Those who believe will receive the Spirit. Notice John uses the future tense. Whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. So John is led to write here what was going to take place in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit ascended upon all the believers gathered in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. He's also setting up about how the Holy Spirit is going to come on all who believe throughout the rest of history. So we just take this in. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, you've accepted Jesus Christ. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. You have eternal life. What that means, you also have the power of the living God residing inside of you. Think about that. The power of the eternal living God dwelling inside of you. And this power enables us to have spiritual gifts, to bear spiritual fruit. This power is what guides us in life as believers. It's what convicts us. It is the power that empowers us to be ambassadors for Christ so that all of us can share the gospel into the world. That's not the preacher's job or just the preacher's job or the deacon's jobs or the elder's jobs. That's all of God's people because God has empowered all of his people to do it. That's amazing. What a great God we serve. Now, I have frequently made the mistake, and I apologize, by referring to the Holy Spirit as it. But the Holy Spirit is he because he is the Spirit of God. And I know we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a whole lot, particularly in Southern Baptist churches or as much as we should. But the Holy Spirit is just as important as God the Father and God the Son because they are all equal. And it's the gift that God has given us at the moment of our salvation. So when you accepted Christ and you received forgiveness and you received eternal life and we received a new identity in Christ, we also received the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. We are now the temple of the living God. John then points out when this is going to happen. We mentioned it happens in Acts chapter 2. But he says at the very end of verse 39, he says, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And what John is pointing to here, what he means is, is the Holy Spirit is going to come, and the believers are then going to be overflowing with living water only after Jesus has lived his perfect life According to the word of God, after he died on the cross for the sins of the world as the atoning sacrifice, after he rose from the grave to show he has the power over death, after he's fulfilled all of God's promises and prophecies, after he's raised and seen by over 500 witnesses for 40 days and then ascended into heaven, that's what that word glorified means. 
That's what John is pointing to. And it would be the ultimate sign of glorification because it was the ultimate sign of Jesus completing the mission and the purpose to which he was sent. This, of course, brings us to a final question. Have you believed what Jesus did and have you let it publicly be known? If you know you haven't but you're, or you're unsure, then God has brought you here today to extend his invitation of salvation and grace so that you can state openly and publicly that Jesus is, in fact, your Lord and Savior. This is why we preach the gospel. It's because God created you for a relationship with him. And it's our sins that separate us from that relationship. If you know what the word sin means, it means falling short. You can think of it like an air ball. We fall short of God's holiness and his perfection. We can't hit that mark. And some of us may try to be good or go to church or do good things, but that still won't hit that mark. That's why Jesus Christ came and did, and that's why he was ultimately glorified. And the Bible says when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ's work, and we confess him as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved. We will be forgiven. We will be empowered by the Spirit of God. If you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're in a right relationship with God, we're going to come into a time of invitation, and I'm going to ask you to just come down. You can just say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. If you know for certain you're not in a relationship with God, then don't stay where you are. Let today be the day of your salvation. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us in a song. I want to pray over us real quick. Father, you are good. And your love endures forever. We thank you for sending your son to save us. We thank you for claiming us as your own, for knowing us as your own, for calling us your children and heirs to your kingdom by our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you in that particular relationship, I pray that your spirit would speak to their heart. And today would become the day of their salvation. They would come down this aisle and confess you publicly as their Lord and Savior and their need for forgiveness. We give you all the glory for you alone are worthy of it. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.